Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have with me Dr. Charlotte Al-Halili to tell us about her book that's just come out um, in 2023 from UCL Press, Waiting for the Revolution to End, Syrian Displacement, Time and Subjectivity. Uh, The book explores the Syrian revolution through the experiences of citizens in exile. Um, Charlotte wrote the book, after more than three years of embedded fieldwork, which is quite impressive, um, of Syrians displaced in southern Turkey to understand how they experience um, the revolution, what happened, what happened to them, and sort of what they're doing now in exile. So Charlotte, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast to tell us about the book. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, we're very pleased to have you, but um, before we dive into all the fascinating things about the book, could you start us off with a bit of an introduction of yourself and why you decided to write this? Yes, of course. So I'm a social anthropologist and I'm currently a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow in Sussex University. But I actually uh, started my postgraduate studies and research um, degree in philosophy, in contemporary philosophy in France. And I started to engage with anthropology later and particularly with its, with its uh, decolonial potential during a student exchange in Brazil. I then pursued my postgraduate studies in anthropology in the UK and did my PhD in UCL in a research project focusing on the anthropologies of revolutionary politics. So I started my research in anthropology around the time that the Arab revolutions began And as I had a strong interest in alternative politics and the colonial thought and practices, I became very interested in these events as something radically different seemed to be happening, particularly in Syria, with the emergence of new forms of political actions, imagination and structures. So it seemed that through these revolutionary experiences and events, revolution was itself being redefined or had to be redefined for it did not necessarily fit the most widespread definition that remains quite Eurocentric and it's um, and since it's inherited from Enlightenment philosophy. So some of the questions that led my research and the writing of the book were what new political forms of action and imagination are being invented in the Syrian uprising? What does it mean to take part in a revolution, to be forcefully displaced as a result of mass political violence? and to see one's utopic projects shattered and defeated. 
I also uh, question how does the Syrian experience redefine what a revolution is and can be in Syria, but also more widely. And during the writing process um, of the book, I was really trying to um, reflect on what remains of the 2011 revolution and its defeat and where it might be located. So how can it be ethnographically sized? Thank you for that introduction. It gives us a whole bunch of things to then discuss in more detail. Um, first off, I think, especially given the ethnographic approach of the book, can you tell us a bit about the time period, place and the communities that you focus on in the book and how you made those decisions? Yes. So actually, my first intention was to work inside Syria's liberated areas along the Turkish border. But this project became quickly impossible to carry on because of the risk and ethics um, issues, but also because by the time I started fieldwork in 2013, the Syrian revolution had turned into a fully-fledged war and it was not possible to conduct long-term ethnographic fieldwork in these areas that were under indiscriminate and intensifying shelling by the Syrian regime and later by its Russian ally. So I decided and started to do fieldwork in southern Turkey along the border. Um, and I first visited my field site in December 2013 and did the first months of fieldwork in the spring 2014. So in these two years, so in these short visits, I was first based in Antakya, which is a border city located 20 kilometers from the Syrian border. And I later started to work in Gaziantep for the biggest part um, of the fieldwork. And actually, so this is the focus in the book from January 2015 to the autumn, um, to, sorry, to the spring 2000, 2016. So it's another border city about 100 kilometers from Aleppo, the second city in Syria. And um, <clears throat> I settled in this city until the autumn of 2019. But as I said, the book mainly focuses on the period running from January 2015 until the spring 2016. So I chose to do field work in Gaziantep for it had become somehow the capital of revolutionaries in exile due to its special historical and political proximity to Syria. So it was a place where opponents to the Assad regime transited, met, worked, and settled more or less temporarily. It was also a city where Syrian revolutionaries could come and seek refuge as well as meet donors and collect money for their projects inside Syria. And it quickly became the siege of the temporary government and of newly formed political bodies such as the local councils. Later on, Gaziantep started to house most of the civil society organization of the Syrian opposition, as well as local NGOs working in liberated areas. So it really became a hub for <clears throat> displaced Syrian revolutionaries, who are the, the people I mainly worked with. So people um, self-defined and self-identified as revolutionaries. And in, in the case of my interlocutor, their majority were Sunni Arabs from lower, middle, and working classes. And they were mainly youth that often had been or were still quite active in the revolution, as well as middle-aged women who supported the revolution in different ways by protesting, cooking, writing banners, collecting medicine, and healing the injured. 
So this is why it made a lot of sense to do field work in Gaziantep, where one could meet all these people who were still going back and forth between the two countries. But also um, it gave the opportunity to work with grassroots organizations and to share displaced families' everyday life. Thank you for introducing that um, so comprehensively. In addition to kind of obviously answering my question, that really helps ground kind of what we're looking at, where we are, and some of the things you investigate that I think we'll then go talk about in a bit more detail. Mm -hmm. Um, But staying at kind of the contextual level, just for one more moment, um, you talk about in the book that you, quote, take revolution as an ethnographic object, that you consider revolution is an ethnographic object. Can you take us through um, sort of what you mean by this and why you think this method helps us understand things that might otherwise be hidden? Yes. So <clears throat> the idea of taking um, revolution as an ethnographic object is really to um, embrace an emic understanding of the revolution. That means to um, adopt my interlocutor's definition, experience, and imagination of what they themselves define as revolution. And by doing that, it really forces the person who analyzes um, this event to decenter one's own view on revolution and to modify one's, one's definition of what a revolution is and can be. So the Syrian 2011 revolution um, is often defined in the literature and in the media as a civil war, a humanitarian catastrophe, and more like by the Syrian regime and its ally as a conspiracy or a terrorist plot. But it is rarely seen as a radical political event or process that started peacefully, that has deep roots in Syria's past and a long-lasting and ongoing legacy inside and outside Syria. And by looking at it through my interlocutor's eyes and by putting what I call like putting this, um, the revolution, taking it as an ethnographic object, one can really start seeing um, this revolution as a revolution. So... It means that it presents somehow a counter-history of the revolution and it also helped to fight the invisibilization and the erasure of the revolution and its very actor that is increasingly happening in recent years. So this is why, in in a sense, my book um, started to appear to me as kind of ethnographic archive of the revolution for it gives back this voice that have been quite silenced. But taking revolution as an ethnographic object also forces one to see the Syrian revolution not only as a political event limited in time, space, and scale, that is, as an event taking place, for example, on Syria's main square for a short period of time and aiming at an immediate change of regime, but it pushes one to rather see revolution as a process happening in all domains of Syrian world and affecting all aspects of their life at different scales. So here the revolution is not a circumscribed event in time and space happening in a narrowly defined political domain at the scale of the nation state, but rather a long and deep process that has the power to reconfigure Syrians' life world in all its dimensions. It's, it does has a concrete impact on family organization, gender norms, 
but also on perceptions of time and political imagination. So the concept of revolution is redefined. It is both, um, both enlarged and made more specific through the lived experience of my interlocutors. So it's no longer simply a question of whether the revolution has failed or success, succeeded, but it also um, become like about the revolution being a transformative entity that has a concrete everyday um, impact on Syrians' world and life. Mm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you for explaining that. In terms of kind of the first um, way in which I'd I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about this idea of kind of revolution impacting everyday people in everyday ways. Um, you discuss in the book that often, especially when we're talking about, you know, big political events like revolution, we have the history from above perspective of sort of what happened. But your work shows that people who lived through it and um, people in exile now might have some different ways of interpreting those events. So could you please take us through some of the key ways that the people you spoke to talked about the history of the revolution in contrast to the kind of top-down approach we might already know? Yes. So so when we hear um, what the revolution is from my interlocutors' voices, the Syrian revolution appears as a deeply affecting process that has long-lasting consequences Although not all these consequences um, this were like expected, many were actually unexpected, but it is also um, part of a long history of contentious politics in the country and the region. So rather than seeing it as a reaction to other uprising and revolutions in the Arab world, for example, or as a direct answer to specific sociopolitical condition, or even... Uh, an answer to climate change, as some have argued, the revolution appears before all as part of a continuum of struggles. It belongs to a cycle of revolutionary episodes that have their own logic within the Syrian and the regional history. So many of my interlocutors linked this revolution to the 1982 uprising in Syria, for example. So it's um, the Muslim Brothers I mean, generally known as the Muslim Brother Uprising um, that ended up with the massacre of over 20,000 people um, in Hama. Um, and the aim was um, obviously the downfall of, of the Assad regime as well, but of, of the father of uh, Hafez al-Assad, not Bashar al-Assad. Other of my interlocutors also uh, place back the 2011 revolution within a longer and wider history of oppression and self-determination in the region, for instance, linking it to the Palestinian Nakba of 1948, and others still place it in the continuity of the 1923 and 1936 rebellions against the French mandate. So it, it really shows that the revolution is not thought of as um, a, like a separated event from a bigger um, history of revolts, rebellion, and uprising. And this revolutionary cycle is also seen as still happening and as not having ended yet. So my interlocutors perceive the revolution as a long process that could still take a generation or more to reach its primary aim. So long-lasting political change in Syria and the region. 
So what is striking here is the difference, as you mentioned, in narrative between my interlocutor's bottom-up approach or versions of the events and the dominant um, up-bottom views. So for my interlocutors, the defeat of their revolution, the political domain at the scale of the state is not a sign that their revolution is not a revolution or that it has failed. Yet in the dominant history and historiography of revolution, a revolution is a revolution only if it did succeed in the narrow sense that it operated a change in political regime. So there is an old regime that is replaced by a new one. And one here can think of like the kind of paradigmatic example of revolution, the French Revolution with the old regime being replaced by the new regime. So in general, if such a change or rupture and a clear before after is not happening, revolutions end up in history's dustbin. They don't appear as revolution in history. They appear merely as uh, aborted revolt, or even they can be somehow deleted as, in a way, what is happening with the Syrian one that is seen rather as a civil war and a violent conflict and long-lasting conflict rather than um, starting with a revolutionary <clears throat> uprising. So here my interlocutors argue that the changes are deeper than a change of regime that can be reversed easily, as we've seen in Egypt, for instance. Because here the entire Syrian society has been transformed by the revolution. And this is still according to my interlocutor. So the dichotomy of failure success of the revolution does not operate in this context. For the revolution's goal is much wider than a change of political regime, as one sees when taking revolution as an ethnographic object, as, as we were saying earlier. So the revolution become, um, becomes synonymous of a series of radical transformations that go far beyond the political field. Hmm. No, that's, I think, a very useful thing in terms of our historical understanding and very useful practically as well to keep in mind, as you said, it's not a simple kind of switch from A to B that could be reversed um, in such a simplified way. Staying on this idea of kind of the history and understanding of the revolution, I think a particular strength um, that can often be a downfall of um, asking people about things after the fact is, of course, that ideas, conce uh, concepts can change over time. And I think you really make that a strength in the book um, by tracing this explicitly. So can you walk us through ways in which your interlocutors changed or evolved their understandings of the causes and definitions of revolution, revolutionary change over the years you spent talking to them? Yeah, so it's true that not all my interlocutors stick to such a positive or hopeful definition of revolution. And many started to question even their very actions in the revolution and the nature of the events they participate in over the years as the country started to be increasingly destroyed, so some speak now of herbicide in certain regions, that is the, the total destruction of entire localities, the country's population has been massively displaced, with half of the pre-2011 population internally or externally displaced, and with um, hundreds of thousands of people 
who have been killed with by like this year in March 2023, the estimate was between 700,000 and 900,000 civilian, that 900,000 civilian had been killed. And also, I mean, the, the, the repercussion of the, the repression is also visible in the num- through the numbers of um, detainees and forcefully disappeared Syrians with about 100,000 as well of people being detained and forcefully disappeared. So in such um, a context that, that is still a context of um, humanitarian crisis and extreme um, mass political violence, um, a lot of my interlocutors started to to rethink, actually, to think, is, is it really, was it really a revolution? Is it still a revolution? How do we call these events? Can we call them a war? Can we really call them a civil war? And most of them refused this um, latter term because they felt that they would be falling within um, the regime's um, propaganda. But... <clears throat> With the the rapid descent into a fully fledged war that later became a proxy war, some interlocutors fell into despair and started to see their revolution as failed, and started some started to blame themselves for this failure, and and some, but it was a minority, started also to regret um, that they that they maybe were somehow in some ways responsible for some of their people's. Um, Light. Yet, many of my interlocutors continue to see the revolution as momentarily defeated rather than totally failed, which was a way also not to put the blame only on themselves, on the people who had dared to revolt against such an oppressive and violent regime. And it was also in a way to, to make more room to understand the revolutionary changes that were still ongoing within Syria's liberated areas and displaced communities. So this led some to start seeing the revolution as having shifted from the political to the social and the intimate domains. And to to say that if it had been defeated indeed in the political domain, at least inside Syria, at the scale of the state, it had, however, succeeded in greatly transforming the social fabric in many different ways, and again, inside and outside Syria. So here, um, what we can see through through the the ethnography that I present in the book is that um, a revolution defeated in the political domain can nonetheless produce raptures and disruptions in what is often seen as peripheral to revolutionary actions and events, and often also seen as apolitical, so the everyday life, the kinship relations, the religious imagination, and different special temple practices. Mm. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, I think it goes back to your point earlier about kind of when you're speaking to people and what that helps us understand. Moving to a different part of the book, can you explain to us the inside-outside conception um, that your interlocutors spoke of and that you find so key to the creation of revolutionary personhood in these exiled communities? Yeah, so actually very quickly in the revolutionary process, the Syrian territory was divided into areas controlled by different groups and factions. 
So the armed rebellion started uh, from July 2012 and it led to some parts of the country being liberated and later often besieged and retaken by the regime. So these liberated areas were controlled and governed by um, like the FSA, the Free Syrian Army often, and then later on different armed groups. But there were also revolutionary strongholds. So with the increase in the repression, many were, however, forced to flee, not only within the country, but also outside the, the country. And this formed a new geography that gave a specific shape to what it means to be a revolutionary according to where one lives or has lived during the revolution. So for most of my interlocutors, being a revolutionary meant for a long time, and I would say from 2011 up to 2015, meant being inside Syria. And this was later declined with the intensification of siege, bombing, and the closure of the Syrian-Turkish border in 2015, as having lived an extensive period of time inside or going back and forth between Syria and Turkey, inside and outside, um, because the situation was more and more deteriorating into a war. But being inside could also mean different things, because it could mean being in liberated areas, being in besieged areas, but also being detained by the regime. And these different insides did not necessarily have the same outsides and obviously did not interconnect similarly with the outside as they were closed in various ways. However, having been and having lived inside was a strong marker of one's revolutionariness, for it denoted one's willingness to sacrifice one's present, if not one's own life, to the revolution. So, for instance, going or staying in liberated and besieged areas, although it was obviously not always a choice, meant a certain acceptance and readiness to sacrifice one's life and one's self. So by going inside, one embraced fully the revolution's demand and was ready not only to fully transform oneself, but also to potentially sacrifice oneself which are two key points in becoming a revolutionary that appear across a variety of contexts in, in the literature, or at least in the anthropological literature um, of revolution. So by going or staying inside, one loses one's normal everyday life as state-run services were quickly cut in these areas with no running water, no electricity. One's work was profoundly changed as one often had to reinvent their everyday activities. So for example, from being a student to training to become a nurse, people's social life were also greatly modified because many family members, friends, and acquaintances left the liberated area or besieged area. And those who were staying inside could cut also ties with those going outside, especially if the outside was the regime areas because otherwise they could endanger their relatives by staying in touch with them. And by being inside, so one became a revolutionary because people's entire life became dedicated to the revolution, to organize the revolutionary space, 
to imagine new forms of life in common, to find very concrete solutions to pragmatic issues such as finding water, food, and electricity supplies, but also finding ways to run hospitals, schools, and other services without the state apparatus. Hmm. No, really interesting combination of sort of what people choose to do, how much it's a choice, and kind of what the reaction is afterwards. Picking up another thread of what you've mentioned a little bit already, I'd love to go into it in a bit more detail. Can you help us understand um, what performing or showing that revolutionary self might look like and to what extent this is different for different genders? Yes. So as as I mentioned quickly, being a revolutionary and its um, fundamental link with the inside was shaken when Syrians were increasingly forced to flee their country with the intensification of the repression and the violent war the regime launched on liberated and besieged areas. So in displacement, being a revolutionary was quite differently performed for men and women because if men were quite vocal about their revolutionary actions, and could quite loudly speak in public about the, what became somehow the rite of passage they went through. So for example, being besieged, being injured, being detained, being tortured, taking life-threatening risks, crossing to the inside. So men could speak about all these things, but women were not as often and as readily speaking publicly and even privately about episodes that often involve physical and sexual violence. So for women, putting oneself and one's body integrity at risk was not valued the same way it was um, for men. And the same way, because one of the the main uh, structuring um, theme for for men to show that they, they were revolutionary, they were still revolutionary to to maintain their revolutionary self was going back and forth between the inside and the outside, from so from Gaziantep to the liberated areas. And men would often recount these journeys through heroic, like in heroic um, narratives, um, often publicly. And it was seen very positively for men to have done so and, and to be speaking about it. But it was rather seen as something dangerous and was not necessarily valued for women. So many women kept their, the activities they run inside much more secret and low-key. But also these activities and, and women's mobility between inside and outside became more limited and more complicated as women started to need a male relative to go out of their place and travel in, in, travel in many parts of Syria. So it was, for example, easier for like in what appeared more for women and um, the way in which their revolutionary self was more um, silent was through speaking about their time in besieged area, for example, and through the recounting of their difficulties, their plight in the besieged areas. So women who were displaced outside were often valued for their resilience when they were besieged or when they were in liberated areas. And then also their resilience outside waiting to be reunited with um, 
family members or surviving and making a living for their family outside. So it was not, as for men, their resistance to physical and psychological torture or violence or their risk-taking ability for crossing to the inside and the willingness to sacrifice themselves for the revolution that was valued, but rather this um, quality of staying put and being resilient to what was happening around them. Mm. Thank you for taking us through those um, differences. It's, I think, an interesting um, way to see kind of how other built-in messages and expectations around gender interact when um, other things are disrupted. They're kind of, they're still there, right? Um, and they do different things. Thinking about the kind of fact of exile, so not just obviously um, surviving the different changes and having to make constrained choices, but being in Turkey um, as being part of this, what do you think we can learn from that particular subset of experiences, being Syrian, experiencing revolution and being displaced in Turkey? If we think of hospitality, if we think of that kind of social relationship as being a scale um, of having assemblages with different positions, different registers, um, and kind of moving up and down in some ways. What what does that tell us? So looking at Syrian displacement through the trope of hospitality defined as a scalar assemblage, as I tried to, to argue in, in the book, uh, seems to help making sense of their uncertain legal status and their precarious everyday life in Turkey. So today, Turkey hosts over 3.6 million Syrians. However, being despite being called refugees, they are actually temporary guests of the Turkish state. And this is why, because of this terminology of guests, that I was interested in looking at it through the trope of hospitality. Um, and what is important to, to, stay, to say here to start is that the refugee status in Turkey holds a geographical clause that excludes most displaced people who actually live in the country. So they are usually from Iraq, Syria, Iran, or Afghanistan. But the refugee status is only granted to European citizens in Turkey, making the actual number of refugees, the last time I checked, around eight in the country. So for the concept of hospitality, one can actually see how Syrian so-called guest status does actually not correspond to their lived experience in the country, and it helps us um, go beyond the Turkish state rhetoric of welcoming their Syrian brothers and sisters. It also allows to show the plight of those who have a statusless status and to highlight the responsibility of the EU through the implementation of the EU-Turkey deal and other policies that they have led to that have led, sorry, to the building of the EU fortress in creating this uncertain status and precarious life conditions. But this also gives us some historical perspectives um, and shows us how by playing on shared registers with their Turkish hosts, Syrian guests can challenge their hosts and even in some situations become the hosts of their very host. So they become the host of um, their Turkish locals, for example. So by playing on positions and registers, Syrian displaced articulate a strong critique 
of their everyday life and legal condition in Turkey, but they also uh, managed to gain new positionality and to create, for example, um, their own city within um, the Turkish city. But focusing on hospitality's scalar nature also allows to show that hospitality fails when it is captured by a state that transforms ethical religious duties into legal obligations. Because here the Syrian guests cannot really reciprocate state hospitality because they do not, be, they do not belong to the same scale. And they also refuse their guest status claiming to be refugees and then subject of law rather than favor. So here the scalar confusion is also an issue for Turkish locals because it puts them in a delicate position since hospitality's very purpose is defeated by the rescaling of duty-based hospitality and the state's injunction that locals play host to displaced Syrians. So the rescaling of hospitality and the confusion of its moral, religious, and legal registers end up alienating local hosts and guests and creating hostility as hosts and guests characterize each other as bad. And eventually, hospitality's dead ends in this very context lead Syrians to aspire to become refugees, to imagine new migratory horizon, and to follow novel routes, mainly to the EU, to find a better life, to find what they often call um, a life in dignity. Hmm. I think a very interesting um, thing to investigate, right, with the idea of guest status going, hang on, what does that actually mean? How does that play out in practice? So I think a very interesting piece of the book. Moving, however, to another one. Well, I suppose in some ways combining a few things we've talked about um, already, Conceptions of revolution are often sort of, you know, a public protest, marches through the streets, very much things that are noticeable, that are outside the home, um, and that kind of are about sort of high politics, you know, the constitution, who's in charge, that kind of thing. Um, but as you've already spoken of, the revolution in this case is much bigger than that, kind of touches many more areas than that, including, as you said earlier, the very everyday interactions of people. So can you take us through how the revolution moved from being sort of a political or social thing that's outside the house to being something that is very much happening within it? Yes. So after being defeated at the scale of the state in what could be called the, the political domain, the Syrian revolution shifted to a more local level, as I described earlier, in the liberated and besieged areas as life had to be organized and institution had to be formed in these areas for life to run more or less normally. But it also shifted to the social domain, not only inside Syria, but also within the displaced communities outside Syria. So with the impossibility to change the regime at the level of the nation state in the near future, and with many revolutionaries having had to flee along a third of the country's inhabitants, it seems that the revolution moved from being a political to being a social project. And this was made visible through what my interlocutors named irreversible changes. So these changes that were greatly affecting 
their relation to any form of previously taken for granted authorities. But I mean, as you mentioned, I, I wouldn't separate too much the political and the social, I mean, at least too artificially, because um, in the perspective of my interlocutor, the social, the personal, and the intimate, intimate become intrinsically political in this revolutionary moment. So the move from a political to a social project is better understood as a move beyond a narrowly defined political field as a political regime, let's say. And similarly, it is hard to separate what happens inside and outside the home in my interlocutor's perspective as the personal and the political become intrinsically linked. So for instance, my female interlocutors often linked political and patriarchal forms of oppression in direct and indirect ways. They saw the need to rebel inside and outside the home as going hand in hand. However, this shift was not necessarily intended at first as it started to happen as a consequence of having been involved in the revolution, but also as a consequence of the revolution's repression that at the beginning primarily targeted men as women, as it's often in in, the context of revolution and war, were not perceived as powerful political agents or threats by the regime. So as a result, married women and mothers were often left to deal with new roles and responsibility. Many of my interlocutors became the main breadwinner and the sole head of the household. And um, they had never, whereas they had never worked before and always lived with their husband or father in the past, they started to live, to, to be the main person taking care of um, their relatives and the house and the finance and and everything that is related to um, private and social life. So this shift was also enhanced through educational and cultural projects inside and outside Syria, with many women's trainings appearing in displaced community and in liberated areas, for instance. And we could also see... Um, that this kind of shift between what happened outside and inside in a revolutionary process affected younger women who also started to gain new roles and increase their mobility and change some marriage patterns. So this was often linked in their own narratives to their active involvement in the revolution rather than linked to the absence of male relatives due to the repression of the revolution and forced displacement. This was particularly visible in the new marriage pattern that I mentioned that developed after the revolution. So they like mainly started to meet their spouses by themselves and often according to political proximity rather than social or geographical proximity. So a shift from endogamous to politically endogamous forms of marriages. And here, um, social changes were also visible for younger women through their new professional path and new living arrangement with women living alone away from their family in a different country without being married sometimes, which was something that had been unthinkable for most of my interlocutors before the revolution. So this was also obviously this shift 
between inside and outside is also an effect of displacement. But I argue that displacement appears here as amplifying a revolutionary dynamic rather than creating its own new dynamic. Mm. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, Thank you for walking us through that. Turning to um, perhaps the final question about the book, though I'll have one question after that. Um, Can you tell us what's significant about your interlocutor's understanding of martyrdom and its relationship to revolutionary action and political action that we've been discussing? Yes, of course. So first of all, I, I want to mention that the conception of martyrdom is rather widespread across a variety of revolutionary contexts and context of mass political violence. And one can go back, for example, to the French and Soviet revolutions and find comparable ideas of self-sacrifice and martyrdom. However, in the Syrian context, at least among the majority of my Sunni interlocutors who were rather religiously committed, martyrdom takes on an explicit religious dimension and is deployed through a religious script, which is not necessarily contradictory with his political dimension. And actually, I'm trying to show that they come hand in hand. But what is interesting here about my interlocutor's conception of martyrdom is that it does not only help make sense of individual self-sacrifice, of violence and premature death, but it also helps articulate the reasons of the defeat of the revolution. It thus operates on an individual and collective scale. On the one hand, it helps making sense of one's willingness to sacrifice oneself, one's preparedness to meet one's martyr's destiny, and therefore guides one's individual actions in the revolution. And on the other hand, it allows my interlocutors to make sense of the defeat of their revolution and therefore of their collective action. So in a way, Martyrdom and predestination work as theories of political and revolutionary actions on an individual and collective level. They become keys to understand individual loss, um, individual action, but also collective action, collective defeat, and they allow my interlocutors to make sense of individual and collective tragedies. Mm. And given, of course, um, the scale of the individual and collective tragedies we're talking about here, um, it makes sense to have uh, responses to them. I did say that was going to be my last question about the book, (laughs) and I will stick to that as I think we've done a decent job of kind of going through the highlights of each chapter. Yeah. (laughs) Lovely. Um, So that leaves me only with my final question. Um, This book is obviously available for people to read. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic you'd like to preview for us? So I'm actually um, working on a new project that is um, th- that built in some ways and expands th- this previous work, um, but that also like shift a little bit in, uh, in terms of uh, field site location because I'm currently conducting fieldwork in Lebanon and I'm looking at the material traces of mass political violence in Lebanese, Syrian and Palestinian communities. And I focus on the visual and material representations and marks left by the past wars, revolution and rebellions in this community in and around Beirut. So in this perspective, I'm particularly paying attention to the cityscape and architecture of Beirut and the ways in which they bear witness of this past 
and ongoing violence. But I also um, look at the expressions and memories of these forms of violence as, as they appear in theater production and in traditional forms of embroidery, for example. So I see it as um, somehow continuing this investigation into the traces of um, mass political violence and also continuing the investigation into um, revolutionary aspirations, actions, and uh, subjects. Ooh, well, thank you for previewing that for us. Um, sounds like a fascinating new thing to look at. And while you're doing that, of course, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Waiting for the Revolution to End, Syrian Displacement, Time and Subjectivity, published by UCL Press in 2023. Charlotte, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda, for having me.